Matthew chapter 15. As you're turning, I do want to say a quick thank you to uh, a group of guys that came up yesterday. Uh, we were in the process of just kind of uh, upgrading our curb appeal. I don't know if you noticed it when you came in. We've put some cedar columns just to kind of freshen up the, the front, and we're going to be putting a big sign uh, for the church uh, on the right side. Um, and so I just want to say thank you to the group of guys. You know who you are. I won't point you out. But a group came up yesterday and brought some saws and wood and, and took care of it. We also this past week um, had uh, a few uh, we have a company come in, they're tweaking our HVAC, uh, making some changes, some much-needed changes. And so if you're on this side of the sanctuary, uh, you're not getting blasted by a wind tunnel. Uh, that has been adjusted. It is now blasting to the back of the building and circulating around, which is, which is wonderful. Oh, thank you. Appreciate that. Bethany, it only took us 10 years, you know. <laughs> Don't ever say we're not prompt. Yeah, yeah. Uh, just took us 10 years, uh, but we are actually going to be making a few additional changes uh, to the classrooms upstairs and also to the kids' zone. happens to get pretty cold, and so there's some really simple things that we can do to, to upgrade the HVAC, and so um, we are making those changes. You know, it's, it's constantly, a, you know, a battle of, uh, you know, just, you know, things go from, uh, from order to chaos, and they, they tend to do so very quickly, and so we're constantly having to just make little investments here or there just to keep the building uh, upgraded, uh, comfortable. Uh, you know, we, we've built out this thing in a, in a really interesting way, and God's used this facility uh, to his purposes. And so we're thankful for that, but we're always trying to make improvements to it. So uh, if you join me, let's pray very quickly again. We go verse by verse, chapter by chapter through books of the Bible. We are in the Gospel of Matthew. We're going to dive into chapter 15, verse 21, because we start with verse 20. That's kind of how it works. And then we'll get as far as we can, and we'll pick up where we leave off next Sunday. That's kind of the uh, the, the way things play itself out. So, Father, Lord, we do turn our attention to the written word so that we might know the living word, that we might get to know your son, Jesus. And in the process of spending time with him through the word, the way that you've chosen to reveal yourself, Lord, we pray that, that, that your son would rub off on us, Lord, that, that we would become more like him, that as we learn about him, that we would begin to emulate him. Lord, that we would more effectively represent him. Lord, the world does not need, uh, it doesn't need more of us. It needs a lot more of you. And Lord, we don't have the answers to all of the problems that our society faces, but you are the answer. And Lord, it's not just being a witness by the things that we say, which, which are important, or the things that we do, which is critical as well, but Lord, we're a witness by who we are and who you're making us into. And so, Lord, we need this, this thing to happen by which you, you, you transform us from the inside so that that might work outside. We come to you in faith, asking that you'd work. And together as a church, we said, amen. We're going to dive right into the text because we encounter here in the second half of Matthew 15 a very interesting story. We read verse 21 that when Jesus went out from there, and we will work our way back and set some context in a moment, but Jesus went out from there and he departed, <clears throat> so he leaves the Galilee, and he goes up to the region north, about 40 clicks towards the coast, to Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a woman of Canaan came from that region and cried out to Jesus, saying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely demon-possessed. But Jesus answered her not a word. And his disciples came, and they urged Jesus, saying, Send her away, for she cries out after us. 
Not true that she was actually crying out after Jesus, but Jesus answered and he said, and, and again, this is to the disciples, he said, I was not sent except to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Then she came and she worshiped him saying, Lord, help me. But he answered and said, it is not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the little dogs. And she said, yes, Lord, yet even the little dogs eat the crumbs which fall from the master's table. Then Jesus answered and said to her, O woman, great is your faith. Let it be to you as you desire. And her daughter was healed from that very hour. What a very bizarre exchange, just to be honest. You read through this and you're like, man, Jesus initially doesn't come across very nice, does he? He comes across a little brash, a little short-tempered, a little short-handed with this woman. What is exactly going on? Now, we read this story first to just set up kind of how weird it plays itself out. In order for us to backtrack just one step to establish a little context, which is important for what's happening within the story. Because Jesus is, is, he's not being coy. He's being very deliberate. He's being very specific. He's being very intentional. Not just in how he's handling this woman who's dealing with this particular crisis, but he's also using the situation, he's orchestrating the, the, the situation for a secondary audience, that being the disciples. So there's two different things that are going on. There's two different crowds that Jesus is addressing within the flow of this interesting story. Jesus is, yes, dealing with the woman, and we'll examine that, but he's also dealing with the woman in a particular context to teach the disciples some important lessons, some important lessons that he'll then hammer forth throughout the rest of the chapter. Now, some context. As we've been looking at, Jesus has been kind of on this roll. He's been in the Galilee. He's been ministering to the multitudes. Some amazing things have happened. The feeding of the 5,000. This incredible moment where, where they want to make him their king. But Jesus hammers home, I'm more than a king. I am God. By replicating this miracle, uh, reflective of their forefathers when they were in the wilderness. And they were complaining to Moses. And God provided for them bread from heaven. Jesus here in the wilderness, complaining. He provides them bread. He emulates this miracle. He's hammering home the reality that I'm just not here to be a king. I'm here as God. I'm here to feed you. In fact, John, his gospel will give us some greater context to the miracle. Jesus will say to the critics of that miracle, you guys don't understand it, do you? I am, he says, the bread of life. Anyone that comes to me will eat and he won't hunger again. I mean, Jesus is making some really radical revolutionary points. Carrying forth from that, he puts the disciples into a boat. He ends up walking across the water in the midst of a storm. Again, an amazing story, an amazing scene, amazing exchange. He gets to the other side, and then he counters the skeptics. A delegation sent from Jerusalem, the religious right. You have a, a, a grouping of the, the scribes and the Pharisees. These were the Bible thumpers of the day. The Pharisees were the, the literalists. They were traditionalists. They were Bible folk. They studied the Old Testament. They knew the understand the Old Testament. The scribes, the combination of the two, they were serious about the things of God, the word of God, obeying what God had to say. And yet in the course of their desire to be obedient, they had begun to add on to God's word things that God's word didn't articulate. 
They were adding on to God's word and elevating to the same plateau of God's word, the traditions of men. We looked at this last week. Jesus has this exchange with them. And he, he directly attacks them on this, the dietary restrictions. They come complaining, why do your disciples disregard the traditions of men? And then they give an example. They don't wash their hands before they eat. And Jesus doesn't actually answer their question. He presents his own. Why do you discount the commandments of God for your traditions? And then he gives this example of, of honoring your father and mother. And he makes a larger point. Looking back at the text, he makes this point that, that it's not what goes into a man that defiles him, but what comes out of him. Jesus flips on its head the whole basis of morality, our understanding of morality. We're not righteous because of the things that we do. We're righteous because of who we are. You're not right with God because you do the right things. You do the right things as a manifestation of being right with God. It's the concept of grace at its core. We don't have to earn God's favor. We receive God's favor, and we allow it to change us. You don't obey God because you have to. You obey God because why wouldn't you within the context of all that God has given you? Understand, I'll give you an example, tithing. Churches talk about tithing all the time. Our church, we don't talk a lot about money unless the scriptures warrant it. We leave that between you and God. That doesn't mean that God doesn't have a lot of strong opinions when it comes to money. But understand the whole motivation of tithing, it's not to get God's blessings. And you'll hear some pastors say this. They'll say, if you honor God with your money, if you give of your first fruits, God will give more back to you. Now, there is a truth there, but that is not the core motivation behind our giving. We don't give to get anything from God. Why? Because you already have it all. In Ephesians chapter two, Paul will say that you've been given every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies. You've been given. You didn't earn it. You don't merit it. You don't deserve it. You're given it and you receive it. And when you understand, my goodness, God has given me everything, then why wouldn't I in turn be charitable and give it back? Because it's not mine to begin with. You'll hear pastors say, how much of your wallet are you going to give to God? What percentage of that billfold are you going to give to the Lord? Well, I would flip it. How much of God's wallet are you going to keep for yourself? How much of God's billfold are you going to hold back? It's all his. And when you understand I have nothing apart from him, apart from his goodness, apart from his grace, I don't give charitably because I have to or I'm trying to earn something. I do it because God has given me so much, this is in my heart, that it then motivates an action. And that's what Jesus is getting at. You really want to know about a person. It's about the heart. And he makes this radical statement. He says, he says back in verse 7, he's, he calls them hypocrites. And again, these are the religious people. These were the do-gooders. I mean, on the surface level, they had everything under control. They had everything buttoned up. I mean, they looked the part. And Jesus is like, you, you look great, but you're rotten. It's all a facade. You're pretending. You're a poser. He says, and you know what Isaiah did well talking about you guys? He says, verse 8, that these people draw near to me with their mouth, and they honor me with their lips. They say the right things, but their heart is far from me. And in vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. So Jesus has this conflict, this exchange, even to the point that like it's, it's so awkward and uncomfortable. I love this. 
But, but we're told, uh, let's see, where, where is it? He says, the disciples, verse 12, came, and they said, do you not know that the Pharisees are offended? Like, th- this, this exchange is so, it's so heavy, it's so passionate, it's so, there, there's such a conflict to it. What Jesus is saying uh, lands where everyone is, is, a, is a little like, uh, a little uneasy, and, and, and the disciples are like, hey, Jesus, you know, you, you, like, you're really, what you're saying is really offensive. Offensive. It offends their sense of morality, their sensibilities. It offends, you know, Jesus had no problem offending people. And then what does he say in return? He says, let them alone. You know, if the gospel offends someone and they leave, let them go. If the truth offends, let somebody roll. You know, we we live in a church culture that, that downplays hard truth because we want everyone to stay. And yet Jesus had no problem speaking the truth because he wasn't worried about losing anyone. I think that's such an interesting idea in, in the scope of, of, of how critical it is to modern Christian culture. You know, if there isn't anything ever said from a pulpit that offends our culture, you, you're, you're, you're sitting under the wrong pulpit. And we'll take that even, even more on the, the micro level. If there's something within the scriptures, like if you never come to a Bible study and leave feeling challenged, then again, you're not going to a church that's challenging. Like the word of God, it's, it's, it's described as a sword and not a dull one, a sharp one, and it's two-edged. And we should come to Bible studies and feel encouraged and uplifted but there are, are other times that we should, we should leave feeling convicted and heavy and, and weighty and like, Lord, that sword should cut both ways, not just within the culture, but within our own hearts. If you're never offended, are you ever getting the truth? And Jesus had no problem, so he has this exchange, leave them alone, let them go, and then we're told in the context given to us, verse 21, Jesus leaves So he has this battle royale. He says some offensive things. He's like, let them be. They're blind leading the blind, he describes them. And when the blind lead the blind, they both end up in a ditch. It's a bad thing for the the blind and the leader. And then he leaves, so he leaves the Galilee, and he goes specifically to the region of Tyre and Sidon. Now, we don't have any Jews in this crowd, but to the Jewish crowd reading this, or even observing it, or traveling with Jesus, this is... This is kind of a radical thing because Jesus here, he's dealing with the religious house of Israel, the leaders of Israel. He's come to them. He's made his intentions clear by feeding the 5,000. He's demonstrated his power to the disciples on the sea where they end up worshiping him, not as a king, but as the son of God. And then the religious leaders, he has this exchange. They're not getting it. They're hard-headed. He even gets to the disciples, do you guys not understand yet what I'm trying to articulate? And then he leaves Israel. That's what's happening. He leaves the promised land, and he goes to Tyre and Sidon, which are Phoenician cities in in present-day Lebanon. He goes about 40 miles north. He goes to the Mediterranean coast. He goes to a region outside of the promised land. This is not a region occupied by Jewish people. This is purely Gentile. The Jews hated the Gentiles. They were bigoted towards the Gentiles. They, they, they had their nose down to the Gentile, the rest of the world. 
They had mistaken their privilege. Instead of it being a responsibility, it, it gave them a license to, to hold themselves in a higher standard above the people. So Jesus goes to this area. It's outside of Israel, and he's encountered specifically by a Canaanite. Now, again, within the context of the Old Testament, please realize the Canaanites are the arch enemies of the people of God. You know, going all the way back where, where you know, you have Abraham, you have Isaac, Jacob, Jacob's 12 sons, they end up in Egypt for 400 years. They come back, the land is filled. In fact, their first arrival back to the land as a nation, they send in some spies, they scout out the land, they find the Canaanites are dwelling there, and they're scared of them. So they refuse to enter. So they wander for 40 years till that generation dies out, and they take two. But the Canaanites were wicked people. They were evil people. And so Jesus leaves Israel. He goes outside of the land of promise. He doesn't encounter a Jew. He encounters a Canaanite. Mark tells us that this lady was a, a Syrophoenician, this woman. So a woman of Canaan, and, and Jesus is going to use this. Again, he's talking to the disciples, trying to make a point to them, and he's going to deal with this woman. Let's first look at, at what Jesus is articulating uh, to the woman. He encounters a woman of Canaan. Mark tells us that he's in a house. So she gets permission. She goes in. She's crying out, and this is the active tense. Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely demon-possessed. Now, Again, this woman, she doesn't have a, a biblical background. She doesn't have an Old Testament understanding. She's from outside of the land. She's not a Jew. She's a pagan Gentile. And yet clearly she's heard about Jesus, hasn't she? Which does give us a little insight into how his fame, his ministry, the things that he was saying, who he was. I mean, it's spreading, not just in Israel, but outside of Israel. Again, we're, we're entire side, a Canaanite woman, and she's heard about Jesus to the point that she hears that Jesus is in town, and she comes, she comes to the house he's staying, and she's making a racket. She's crying out. There's passion within her voice. This woman has a not just demon-possessed daughter, but a severely demon-possessed daughter. Wow. You'd think de being demon-possessed would be bad enough. Being severely demon-possessed. What kind of a life did this look like? What kind of a struggle existed? How did she even know she was demon-possessed? That she was able to attribute whatever was happening, whatever crazy things were occurring at home, whatever violent type of outburst. She was able to, this is a spiritual battle. She's able to, 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 to sense this. She's possessed. And she comes, she hears Jesus is in town. She's desperate. And she comes and she cries out, my Lord, and, and she refers to him as the son of David. Now that's amazing. Because again, she's not a Jew, and she's using a Jewish title for the Messiah, and she's attributing that to Jesus. So she has already greater faith than the Pharisees and the religious leaders of Israel, right? This woman with no background, no Bible, no one, it, it tells you, again, they profess with their lips, but their heart is far from me. This woman knows nothing of what to say with her lips, but her heart is desiring. She's seeking. She's longing. And she's, she's acting only on what she's heard. Very likely, she hasn't seen with her eyes any of Jesus' miracles. Jesus has not been to this area. It's possible that maybe she had traveled down. Maybe she had seen, but we're not told in the text. The implication is that she has just heard a, about Jesus, but what she's heard is enough for her to act on that little bit she knows. 
And she cries out, my Lord. She, she refers to him as the son of David. She uses his messianic. And she lays out what her desire is. My daughter. My daughter is severely possessed. I love the fact that she doesn't then give Jesus um, the prescription of how he should handle the situation. You know, She's just bringing the need. She's not telling Jesus what to do about it. She's just like, hey, I just need you to know that this is what's going on in my life. I don't know what the answer is. I don't know what can be done about it, but I'm just coming to you because while I might not have the answer, I believe you are the answer. And so she comes and she's crying out. She's repeating this. She's saying this. Now it blows me away. Again, Jesus answered her not a word. He just ignored her. So get the scene, right? He's in a house. He's hanging out with his disciples. They're way outside of the land. There's a bunch of Gentiles outside. And this woman, she's, she's there. <laughs> I kind of see her at, at, the, at the window, you know, crying out at the window. And the disciples get irritated because Jesus isn't answering. He's ignoring. She's repeating. She's crying out. Jesus is not giving her any mind. He answered her not a word. Now, why would Jesus not answer her a word? Again, there's two audiences. There's the disciples, and there's her. We'll get back to the disciples in a moment. But this woman's crying out. Now, Jesus not answering her a word, does it deter her? No, the implications of of the Greek grammar here is she continues. She doesn't leave. She remains persistent. Lord, son of David, my daughter, my daughter, Jesus, my daughter. She keeps repeating this. Jesus is not answering her. At some point, the disciples start to get annoyed. And so they come and they say, Jesus, send her away. For she cries out to us. Jesus, deal with her or get rid of her. But this is, this is getting annoying. It kind of gives us insight into her desperation and persistence. And then Jesus answered, and again, this is directed towards the disciples, but the implication being from a response is that the woman hears what he says. So Jesus answers, he says, I was not sent except to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. So he gives an explanation to the disciples why he's not addressing this woman who's crying out. And the answer is, well, I wasn't sent to the Gentiles, I was sent to Israel. Does the woman stop? No. And again, Jesus is reiterating a larger concept to the disciples that's important. I was sent to the house of Israel first and foremost. But the woman hears this. And what happens? What's her response? Does she quit? Does she turn around? Does she leave? Jesus has not answered her. And basically what he said is like, yeah, I wasn't sent for her. I was sent for Israel. Ironically, he's not in Israel. So there's a point to this. But she continues and she moves from from, from the appeal for mercy that she comes, she enters, and she worships Jesus. Says, Lord, help me. And again, the tense is she's repeating this, Lord, help me. This word worship, it it means to to bootlick. It's kind of a southern way of saying it. It means to to come, fall prostrate at the feet. It's it's a sign of, of honoring, of deep respect and admiration. It's worship. Another instance of an example very similar to this is when another woman comes to Jesus in the midst of a crowd of people that looked down on her and judged her, and she has this alabaster glass of fine ointment, and she, and she opens it, and she begins to wash Jesus' feet with her tears and his ointment in her hair. It's the same type of an idea, this, this picture of 
of deep longing and devotion and admiration and love. What a reaction to what Jesus has just said, isn't it? And again, this woman lacks all of the Bible knowledge, all of the understanding, all of the experience, but she's desperate. She sees Jesus as the remedy, and she's not going to be deterred. She worships him. And then Jesus said to her, so this is the first words to her. He says, it's not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the little dogs. Now, now first, the, the word little dog, it kind of kind of rubs you the wrong way a little bit, doesn't it? Especially if you're this woman. And she's, have mercy on me. Here's my problem. I believe that you're, you're my Lord. You're the son of David. I'm worshiping you. Help me. I, I'm desperate. And it, this seems a little dismissive. Now, Jesus is employing a little play on words here. Again, she's worshiping, so she's bootlicking. You dive into the word, it also describes like a dog coming up and resting at your feet. So there's a lot of imagery happening. And Jesus turns to her and he's giving a little explanation for his previous statement to her. He's saying like there's children, the children of Israel is who he's referring to. And they're at the table, the master's table. And as far as what's given to the children, you don't give to the 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 little dogs around the table, what's given to the children. You don't give the same meal to your dog that you do your, your child. Now, the, the word little dog, keep in mind, you'll find examples of this all throughout the scriptures, but the Jews were referred to the Gentiles as dogs. And in the Greek, it's, it's a very derogatory term. It's a slang term. It's very racially motivated and, and disconcerting, honestly. To refer to refer to as a dog. It's not a D-A-W-G. It's not a, it's not a dog of a- admiration. It's a dog. You're a dog. It's not, it's not, what's up, dog? It's not that type of a dog. It's a dog. A scavenger is what the word describes. This is a different term. Again, within the context of the Jews referred to the Gentiles as dogs, this slang. Jesus is calling them a dog, but in a different way. See, this was a little dog. It was a lap dog. This was a pet. This was a dog uh, that was part of the family. It had a role within the family, but it was still in the family. It was taken care of. It was cherished. So Jesus is already contrasting the way that the, the Jews see the Gentiles and the way that he's presenting this idea. And that I love her response. Look at it. She says, yes, Lord. Okay, yes. You're, you're absolutely right. Yet. I love it. Even the little dogs, and I can see her pointing to herself, you know. Even the little dogs eat the crumbs which fall from the master's table. And Jesus answers and he says to her, oh woman, great is your faith. Let it be to you as you desire. And her daughter was healed that very hour. Uh, Why would Jesus deal with this woman? Again, there's another audience we'll get to. Have you ever taken a care to Jesus and it seemed as though he was uninterested? Have you ever come to Jesus in prayer and you've brought a care to Jesus? You've casted that care to him like we're told to and he doesn't utter a word. He seems altogether silent. 
And in some regards, the, the care gets cast back to you. And what do you do with it? The word cast, to cast your care, is there's actually a, a bit of a sports analogy to it. It's, it's to play catch. It's to cast. It's to throw. And the implication is, is that, that this woman, she's casting a care. Have mercy on me. My daughter is severely demon-possessed. I need your help. Lord, and she casts it, and Jesus casts it back. He doesn't answer a word. So now she's got the ball again, and what's she going to do with it? She's going to take her ball and go home? Well, I guess you don't care. No, she casts it back. She comes and she worships. Lord, help me. She casts it right back. And Jesus, what does he do? Casts it back. <laughs> now she's got the ball again. Does this mean that Jesus isn't interested, that he doesn't, isn't caring, that he doesn't have a plan? He came to this area knowing that this would be an encounter. It's the only reason he goes there. It's the only thing we have recorded of him doing while he is there. Jesus leaves Galilee. He goes 40 miles north. For what reason? This woman. So he knows what's going on in her life. He knows about her daughter. He knows the situation. He cares. But this woman, notice, she comes to Jesus with what? A title that she didn't possess. Son of David. She's not a Jew. She has no context of that. And in a lot of ways, her initial approach is very formulaic. Now, she's heard about how, how other people have approached Jesus. She's heard, she's heard the stories. So she takes the little bit of information she knows, and she applies it to her situation, and she comes like everybody would come, except it didn't mean anything to her personally. She's using a messianic term, but Jesus wasn't the Messiah of the Gentiles. He was the Messiah of the Jews. So she's, she is imitating other people's experiences. Now, what she did get right is she came to Jesus. But she's coming to Jesus, imitating the experience and approach of other people, not herself, which is why Jesus is quiet. And then she comes and she worships. And now it's getting personal. And she's, she's, she gets beyond son of David, and she's like, Lord, help me. It's now meaning. There's now depth. This is now personal. It's not formulaic. It's, it's, it's raw. And Jesus makes this statement, you know, about the children and the little dogs. And she's like, I'm cool with being a little dog. I'm fine with that because even the little dogs get the crumbs. And I'm, I'll be a crumb eater if that's what I need. And Jesus is blown, a woman. What faith. From an application of just looking at the woman, again, we cast our cares to him. Sometimes those cares get thrown back. What do you do? Are you persistent? Sometimes we need to cast it back, and then he'll cast it again. And we got, got, sometimes we have to play catch. Why? Because in the experience of playing catch, we move from maybe someone else's experience to our own. We move from, from what, what we've heard other people say to Jesus about a personal one. You know, when you play catch with someone, you get to know that person. A little baseball background. Playing catch with someone. 
and when I found out about my arms, the, the immediate thing about my experience and kind of what I'm going through with physical therapy was the very first thought was I might not get to play catch with my boys until they're teenagers. And I got one that's about to be 11 and another one that's about to be eight. So that's a while. And that bummed me out, brought me to tears. Why? Because there's something about having a glove and a ball, casting it to my son, and he casts it back to me, and I cast it back to my son, and he casts it back to me. You play catch, you talk to someone, you get to know someone. It's a weird thing of being connected with someone. I read this story, I think it was on ESPN.com, but this father, his son, died in a car accident. It was a tragic thing. And, and it broke him. And he was trying to figure out how to get over the pain, the grief. And um, his favorite thing, his therapist, you know, was the favorite thing that he did was playing catch with his son. And he could never play catch with his son again. And so he decided that for every day, for 365 days, he was going to go play catch with a stranger. And it's a really radical story about this guy. And, and, and he would go just to random strangers and say, would you like to play catch with me? And while they're throwing the ball, he talks about his son. And he makes connections with all kinds of people all over the place. It's amazing. Last, last day he played catch was with his daughter at his son's grave. It was just tearjerker. But the connection to it. You know, I think that there's this process where Jesus, Jesus is dealing with this woman. He's playing catch with her. He's ca she's casting a care to him, and he's, he's casting it back. What's she going to do? And she, she's like, we can do this. We can play ball together. I'll cast it back to you. And then it gets casted back. And they're going back and forth. And in the process of it, what's happening? She's getting to know Jesus. She's having a relationship with Jesus. She's moving beyond just things that she had heard to now things that she knows about Jesus and herself. And Jesus ends up working in her life. Now, what's, what's, what's amazing, you, you get to the end of Acts. You find Paul in one of his final missionary journeys ends up going through Tyre and Sidon, and he ends up connecting with a whole group of disciples. There's a whole church in this area. What makes it interesting is that we have no mention, no record at all in the book of Acts of anyone having a missionary journey to Tyre and Sidon. <laughs> Where did this church come from? I think it right here. Jesus' first missionary journey to this woman outside of the land. Now, coming back to the disciples, what is Jesus teaching? He's contrasting. It's pretty obvious, isn't he? In the, in the light of everything that's been going on with his dealings with Israel and Israel's rejection of him, I mean, we are approaching the end. Jesus will go from Tyre and Sidon, and he'll be, begin his journey all the way to Jerusalem for the Passover, and he knows what's inevitable, the ultimate rejection by the children. And he's making the disciples know. He's contrasting the lack of faith with this woman's faith. They have all of this knowledge of God, but they don't know God. This woman didn't know anything about God, and yet she encountered God, and her life was affected by God. And he's making this contrast, and he wants his disciples to see it. He wants his disciples to know it. Why? Because, yes, while the gospel went to the Jew first, once it was rejected, where did it go? It went to the rest of the world. Like this is a, a forerunning of what we see in Acts 10. Interesting that Peter, he's up on this rooftop in Joppa, 
There's a man, Cornelius, centurion, that's wanting God to reveal to him. And God's going to send Peter to do this, but he, he has to descend down. Peter's up, taking a nap. He's hungry. The sheet filled with unclean animals. And God says, Peter, rise and eat. And he's like, no, 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 no. These are unclean. I'm a good Jew. Same concept of what Jesus was just addressing about the dietary restrictions. He's like, no, what I've called clean, let no man call common. And he's, he's I, you know, I have to imagine as Peter is, is chewing on what happens that day, he can't help but think back to this story and the foreshadowing of it. You're the children and there's a feast and you're not eating. But the little dogs, they're hungry for the crumbs that this world is starving. Her daughter was healed that very hour. Verse 29, so Jesus departed from there and he skirted the Sea of Galilee and went up on the mountain and sat down there. Mark gives us a little bit more insight that Jesus comes from Tyre inside and he comes down to a different part of the Galilee uh, known as the Decapolis. This was 10 different cities, uh, Roman cities that were predominantly Gentile. Again, not a Jewish population. Jesus is still ministering to and working in Gentile communities. And we're told that great multitudes came to him, having with them the lame, blind, mute, maimed, and many others. What a collection, right? You got lame people. You got blind people. You got mute people. You got maimed people. Not sure what the difference between being lamed and maimed, but deformed, literally. Many others. And we're told that these people, again, Gentiles, they hear Jesus is in town, He's out at the mountain. They bring all of these sick people, these injured people, these lame people. They lay them down at Jesus' feet. And he healed them. So the multitude marveled when they saw that the mute was speaking, that the, the maimed was made whole, that the lame were walking, that the blind were seeing. And they glorified the God of Israel. Again, these are Gentiles, pagan Gentiles. These are people that believe in, in the pantheon of, of Roman deities as they've derived from Greek deities. They have a God for everything. And yet, and yet they recognize something within Jesus. That God had become flesh, that God was dwelling amongst them. And, and, and Jesus heals them, he ministers to them, and they glorify. Gentiles are glorifying the God of Israel. Now Jesus called his disciples to himself. And he said, I have compassion on the multitude because they have now continued with me three days and have nothing to eat. And I do not want to send them away hungry lest they faint on the way. What a contrast to the earlier story of Jesus feeding the 5,000. Again, in the Galilee, Jewish parts, Jewish audience, Jewish crowd. Jesus teaching about the kingdom, still performing the same type of miraculous works. And it's the disciples that come to bring to Jesus the problem, right? And yet in this instance, Jesus is the one that comes to the disciples to bring up the problem. Why? In this instance, the disciples don't care that the Gentiles are hungry. They don't like the Gentiles. They're not sure why they're there. They're trying to stay away because they're icky. It was enough they went to Tyre and Sidon. Now we come back to the Decapolis. And for three days, note that, for three days, 
Jesus is, is teaching them. He's ministering. He's healing them. For three days, people are hanging out with Jesus, these Gentiles. And Jesus becomes a little bit alarmed. He comes to the disciples and says, hey, I have compassion on the multitude. It's been three days. I got nothing to eat. I don't know if you guys were aware. I have compassion on them. I have compassion on them. Note, I know you guys don't, and you don't care, but I do. I have compassion on them. They have nothing to eat. I don't want to send them away. They might even faint on the way. So the disciples said to Jesus, where could we get enough bread in the wilderness to fill such a great multitude? Excuse me? Have you been not going through the gospel of Matthew? I mean, this is just the previous chapter. Like, why would they, why would they, why would they even reach, why would they have the audacity to even ask such a thing or bring up such a point? Hey, Jesus saying, hey guys, man, these people, they've been with us for, for three days. They're hungry. I don't even want to send them away. Clue, you know? They might faint on the way. I have compassion. I'm trying to change your heart. We should do something about this, right? And they're like, where do we get enough bread out in the wilderness? Can you imagine Jesus' face in that moment? Like, now why would, why would they immediately, because again, they're Gentiles. As amazing as the whole feeding of the 5,000 was, well, God had done it before to Israel. He was doing it again to Israel. In their mind, they have no, they have no ability or even, or they can't conceive that such a miracle, even if Jesus has the power to do it, but there's no way that this would happen for here and this time, at this moment. So Jesus said to them, how many loaves do you have? And they said, seven and a few little fish. Now, I give them credit. This time they did bring a snack. If you remember in the feeding of the 5,000, they had no food. They had to steal a Lunchable from a little kid. In this instance, at least they have some bread. You know, they've been holding on to it. Again, they've also been in the wilderness for three days with Jesus witnessing all of this. And note that they have seven loaves of bread and a few little fish. So Jesus commanded the multitude to sit on the ground. And he took the seven loaves and the fish and gave thanks, broke them, and gave them to his disciples. And the disciples gave to the multitude. Of course this is what Jesus would do. And he, and he the, the exact same method in which he fed the 5,000, the, the method in which he fed the Jews, he replicates, and now the feeding of, of what we would call the 4,000. We'll get to that in a second. The mode is the same. Why? Because Jesus only has one, one mode. He is the bread of life. You come to him and you eat. So he, he takes what's there. Completely in, inadequate. Keep that in mind. Whether it was five loaves and two fish or seven loaves and a few fish, doesn't feed a multitude. Which, you know, on a side note, I, I should reiterate. You know, there are sometimes in our lives when it comes to the provisions of God, or provisions, daily bread, where we're like, I don't know where this is going to come from. You're like, Lord, you, you've said you're going to take care of my needs, but here I am, I'm facing a financial crisis, and I don't know, I, it doesn't work. 
And Jesus is like, it doesn't matter how much you have. It's, it's who has it. And if it's mine, I can, do, I can do really fuzzy math. For those that are faithful with giving, you, you, will, you will note that, that God really is not a mathematician. He does really weird things with numbers. You know, I'll never forget the, when we were about to have Quincy. Jessica, we were, we were double income, no kids. It was nice. And Jess really wanted to be a stay-at-home mom. So Quincy was born Christmas. <clears throat> so we were, okay, you'll be done with work. And like I ran the numbers, and it's like there's no way this works, <laughs> you know? And like I'm cutting everything out that's not essential. And it's like there's no way we can live on, on one income, but, but Lord, this is what you want us to do. This is what Jessica wants to do. We're just going to take a step of faith. And at the end of that year, I, I run all the numbers, and like we had, we had an increase. And like the math just didn't work. And you're like, God, I don't know, I don't, I don't, I don't understand. He's like, yeah, loaves and fish, you remember? That's what I do. I take care of my own. And, and I like to take care of my own from resources that you can't see. Because I just want you to see me. So Jesus takes these seven loaves and a few fish, and, he, and just like the previous miracle, he blesses, he breaks, he gives to the disciples, it's their job to distribute. They hate the people that they're distributing this to. Jesus is trying to work in their hearts, isn't he? We're told that they all ate. They were filled. And they took up seven large baskets full of the fragments that were left. Now those who ate were 4,000 men, besides women and children, so this is a larger multitude. He sent away the multitude, got into the boat, and came to the region of Magdala. First, you know, in the feeding of the 5,000, Jesus did come to the house of Israel first. He came to the Jew first. And he came to give them bread to satisfy the hungry soul. You know, there's a concept, an idea within the soul where we we do, there's a lot of motivators to human behavior. But one of the motivators to human behavior, not often talked enough about, I think, in the church world, but spoken quite a bit in secular culture, is, is a longing for satisfaction. The Rolling Stones, you know, I can't get no satisfaction. Like, I go out into the world, and, and what do I want? I want something to satisfy me. I'm looking for something that clicks, that makes me whole. I, I sense there's a need, I sense a longing, I want satisfaction. And so you go out into the world, and the world offers a lot of things it promises to satisfy, to make you whole, to make you feel good to make you be. And sometimes it's, it's, well, it's money. If I can just have a certain amount of money and you achieve that, what do you want? Rockefeller was asked, how much more money do you need? He goes, one more dollar. It promises to satisfy. You seek after it. You have it. Are you content? No, you want more. And then the, there's the world will say, well, physical satisfaction, pleasure, sex. That's the ticket. That's the solution. I've never met somebody that had sex and the next day was like, I'm done. I'm good. I never have to do that again. I am now whole. No, what happens? It breeds the desire for more and for more. Fame. Again, the world, the world presents solutions, remedies for satisfaction. But it always leads you wanting more. It never satisfies. And yet Jesus comes and, and what does he promise? 
satisfaction. That's, that's the whole imagery of being bread, the bread of life, of drinking from the well so that you would never thirst again, the being living water. It's a satisfaction. It's that reunion to God. It's that connection that gives meaning and purpose. Jesus wants to satisfy. In fact, I would argue he's the only thing. So he comes to Israel, and that's the intention. It's the whole idea of the feeding of the 5,000. That's what he was here to do. To the point that the result, everyone eats, they're filled, and they're happy. (laughs) They're satisfied. And what's left over? 12 baskets, right? 12 tribes of Israel, 12 disciples, 12 representatives, The imagery is consistent. In this instance, we have seven loaves. We have a few fish. We have Jesus to a Gentile group replicating the same miracle in the sense that he had come to do what? To feed even the Gentiles, to satisfy. What's left? Not 12 baskets. We have seven. Seven baskets, seven. Again, we've talked about numerology before, but seven, it means completion, wholeness. But even a step deeper, there's something fascinating that happens within Scripture regarding seven and the church. This age of the Gentiles in which we're living in. Jesus had seven kingdom parables that I believe related, correlated to seven letters written to the church. And in this instance, I can't help but think that the disciples looking back made the connection, wow, Jesus ministering to the Gentiles, the church, not Israel, the church, the Gentiles, and there are seven baskets left over. Seven. I don't go real deep with numerology, but some will argue that 4,000 is emblematic of the world, symbolic of the world. 4,000, not an accident. So Jesus here, he's contrasting, he's setting the stage This is a precursor, folks, to what happens in the book of Acts. Jesus setting the stage. He is the king of the Jews, but he is the king of all men and women. He's the son of God. He's not just the God of Israel. He's the God of the Jew and the Gentile. And his presentation, his ministry, his approach to both identical himself. That he's the only thing that will satisfy. He's the only thing that gives meaning. He's the only thing that lends purpose. He does this with the Jews. The Jews reject him. And now he comes to the Gentiles and he replicates the miracle. And for these men, these disciples, they don't get it yet. They don't get it yet. But they will. Because Jesus is setting the precedent by which you and I are sitting here today. So, Father, Lord, we thank you for this text.